You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, last week we started a new series in the book of Jeremiah, and we were introduced to the prophet Jeremiah, um, who we saw was chosen by God to call the people of Israel to repentance. This was the, the, the main focus of his prophetic ministry. And we talked about, as we look at the book of Jeremiah, about keeping one eye on, on what Jordan last week references, the top line of what's going on. That is kind of the historical circumstances that Israel and, and even us in life, the, the surface level things of what's going on, one eye on that and one eye on the bottom line, which is God's kind of hidden redemptive work in history. So there's the question of what is happening on the top line and on the bottom line is what is God up to in all this? And last week we saw that Jeremiah in his ministry is going to call Israel to repentance, primarily because of their disloyalty to God. You see, the top line historical circumstances in the book of Jeremiah look bleak for Israel. They're going to be conquered by foreign nations. They're going to be feeling the judgment of God. And ultimately, what was beneath that is that their hearts had grown cold and distant from God. But we learn that even in judgment, God is working towards redemption, motivated by his love and ultimately for his, the, the good of Israel. And so the book of Jeremiah each week is going to kind of bring us into this tension. It invites us to trust God's sovereign rule over our lives, to trust in his steadfast love, even when the circumstances of our life don't look like God is there. And this morning, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. And our text this morning is is really going to take us right into the problem that Jeremiah is addressing with Israel. It's going to take us right to the core root issue. And and here's, here's the core of it. That Israel's hearts have turned from worshiping the true and living God to worshiping the gods of other nations. And this is a sort of disloyalty. It's, it's characterized by misdirected worship. The scriptures also call this idolatry. And Jeremiah today is going to begin to use very powerful and emotive language to help us understand just how uh, hurtful and deadly misdirected idolatry is. He's going to let us into how it pains God's heart and secondarily how it deforms us as God's image bearers. And ultimately, we'll see that true salvation, true life and substance belong to God alone. And this text is going to call us to find our life in Christ alone. So let's pray and then we'll jump into chapter 2. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning as people in need. We come to you this morning confessing that we are people who have wayward hearts. Our affections are often given to the things of creation over you, our creator. And we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would use these prophetic words of Jeremiah to 
Yes, remind us of what you did in the past, but to also transcend into the present and to call us to repentance, to help us see where our hearts have strayed, to help us see where our worship, our misdirected worship has offended you, where it has hurt you, where it has destroyed us, and turn us back to the one who is the true source of life, the son who you have sent in Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use this word in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our text. In, uh, we're going to read uh, starting in verse 1, and we'll just kind of work our way through the text. Verse 1 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Let's pause here for a minute. You know, there, there are times when in life when maybe you pull out your old shoebox full of pictures, uh, back when we had physical copies of pictures, or you pull out an album, or maybe today, you, you know, you're on Facebook and the time hop, time hop pops up and, and shows you a picture from 2010, and sometimes you'll, you'll pull out a picture of maybe a relationship, maybe a, a friend or, or someone you, you once knew that at the time of the picture, the relationship represented joy and it was a good time and it was, and it was such fun. Uh, and yet in the present moment when you're looking at it, it brings up pain because something happened to the relationship. Maybe it's an ex-spouse or an ex boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, those can be especially awkward with your children maybe one day, but but. Here's a little bit of what's happening in these first few verses. It's as if God has pulled out a picture of how the relationship was with Israel in the early days in the wilderness when it was just getting going. Jeremiah is going to use marital language throughout his book. And it's as if he's saying, oh, in those early days, there was so much potential. I've led you in the wilderness. I brought you out. I I, I was a, a ready husband to provide for you. And yet in this moment that Jeremiah is, is bringing this picture, it's, it's, looking, it, it's, it's bringing up God's pain because the relationship had reached the point where, um, where, where it, was, it was broken. And there was, we'll see in the text, contention in the relationship. Now, if you, if you study the scriptures, you realize that not every reflection on the wilderness wanderings in the scriptures was necessarily a positive reflection, but it's almost as if things had gotten so strained between God and his people at this point in history that that looked like the honeymoon, right? That in comparatively, that was like the glory days of God and Israel. And so Jeremiah is going to use language in our chapter and in the preceding chapters to help us understand this strained marriage, this strained relationship between God and Israel. And Israel is portrayed as the unfaithful wife who has gone out offering herself to other lovers. I won't read into all the rest of chapter 2. Jordan gets to tell you a little bit about how Jeremiah describes that. You you can hear that next week. Let's keep reading verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. And all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? 
They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Here in these verses, God is asking Israel, essentially he's saying, how was I not a perfect husband to you? How was I not a perfect lover to you? I'd rescued from you from slavery in Egypt. God had led them out of the wilderness miraculously. He'd, he'd given them food and water in, in a dry and weary place. He brought them into the promised land filled with food and all good things. And how did they respond? Our text tells us that they defiled the land. That the priests cared little about God's presence. The teachers of the law, they didn't know God. The shepherds, they sinned against God. And the prophets, well, they were working for Baal, um, who was a god of, of, a, of the Canaanites, and went after things that did not profit. Now, verse 4 tells us something important here. While he certainly lists off some of the leadership issues in Israel, verse 4 tells us something important. It says, all the clans of the house of Israel. Hear to the word, o, o, o Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. You see... It's not just the leadership that had gone astray. It's all the people. You know, sometimes in, in our, I think in our culture, we can, uh, especially today, we can look at, you know, we can complain about the mayor, or we can complain about the president, or we can complain about the pastors. We, you know, we don't have the shepherds, but there's those dirty shepherds. They're always transgressing and sinning. And we can kind of get in this habit of looking everywhere else and complaining and saying what the problem is out there. And here's what Jeremiah is going to do to us. He's going to ask us to stop pointing the finger outward and look into our own hearts. He says, this is an issue of all of Israel. Every one of the, it's not like there's a tribe that got off, a tribe that was faithful. Every one of them in their heart had gone after other lovers. And throughout our study of Jeremiah, we're ultimately going to see that we too are called to stop looking at the problem out there and take an honest look at the problem in here, in us, of how we too have been inwardly wayward, how we've been disloyal and unfaithful to God. You see, this is God saying to Israel that they've been an unfaithful wife. I gave you everything, you can, and you consistently went after other lovers. I cared for you, I loved you, I provided for you, and yet how quickly you forgot me and looked elsewhere to other gods. Um, if you've experienced the betrayal, the breaking down of an intimate relationship, whether that's a close friend of a family member, perhaps of a spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend, if you've experienced that, you know the emotional hurt that, that just kind of bleeds out of that. And Jeremiah is using relational language, marital language, to show us the deep hurt and pain that idolatry causes to God, the deep uh, tension that is brought up 
by this misdirected worship. You see, God's not just some impersonal karmic force out in the universe that if we do bad, well, he just, you know, then he outputs bad. Or if we, we do good, he outputs good. He's not a distant deity. God is a relational God. He wanted a relationship with the people of Israel. And when they worshiped and turned their affections to other gods, it was a deeply hurtful relational move. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he is unchangeable. But he's also mysteriously personal. And in his willingness to love humanity, he opens himself up to pain and suffering. See, astonishingly, God's not one to close off his heart to people. Let's keep reading in verse 9. Therefore... Because they did this, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see and send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. You see, because of Israel's rebellion towards God, because of their turning away from him in their hearts, the relationship has become contentious, right? He mentions that word contending. There's friction. There's the, the, what was meant to be a cooperation has now turned into animosity between them and God. And not only is it animosity between them and God in that relationship, but ultimately their misdirected worship is destroying and deforming them as God's image bearers. Now, there's a lot to sort through in those first 12 verses. There's a lot of things we could dive deeper into. Maybe, maybe you're a little confused on what, what exactly is God saying. Well, verse 13 really is where this whole text lands, and it's going to help us just get crystal clear on what the problem is. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's two things here. Two things at the heart of the issue of Israel's idolatry. First, that they've forsaken God, who's the source of living water. And second, they've made cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. See, when, when Jeremiah first proclaimed this message to the people of Israel, they might have looked at the top line of their life, the situations, you know, kind of the actions that they were doing, and said, Jeremiah, you're crazy. What are you talking about? We go to the temple. We offer sacrifices. We read the scriptures. We recite the scriptures. We've, we've met God's demands. But see, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God to show them, to ask them to look below what, what is on the surface to the issue of their hearts. It's interesting to note that in our text, there's, there's three audiences, really, that, that, Jeremiah, that the book of Jeremiah is addressing. 
There's the, the first audience would have been Jeremiah, the, the original audience uh, of, of Jeremiah's ministry when he was verbally prophesying in the temple, when he was doing his ministry, and before all of the events that he prophes- prophesies about took place. But see, the book of Jeremiah actually comes to us and is written down after his ministry. He's actually looking back upon his ministry in the book. So there's also people who are receiving the written prophecy of Jeremiah who already had experienced and seen everything that he prophesied about come true. So there's two of the audiences. We'll get to the third in a second. And so so as we're reading these words, we also know that this is not, it wasn't just his initial ministry, but it was when people read this book, they had seen this play out. They had seen it happen. Perhaps even through it, they rejected his original prophesying, but now they're in exile and, and, and a, on a, essentially a homeless people sojourning, ruled by other nations, seeing it, that it's come true in a place of brokenness. And having been humbled by judgment, Now Jeremiah's written book comes to them, perhaps as a theological commentary to help them understand what had happened. You see, that's what Jeremiah's doing. He's helping them see not just what happened, but what God was doing in it. Sometimes we need to ask that question in our lives. The circumstances can get crazy. We don't understand. We're confused. The question we need to ask is maybe not God why, but God what are you up to? And what Jeremiah points out to these people who have gone through it, who are now living in exile because of their sin, is that God still desires to know you. He wants to make it right. He wants to call you to repentance, not to leave you in your sin, but to bring you to the, back to the true and living water. Now, there's also a third audience that this is written to, and that would be us. Because Jeremiah's ministry wasn't just his verbal proclamation, but because we have the written account of that, that written account transcends time and space and even comes to us in our moment to speak directly to us. And we share, just as Israel had, this propensity towards disloyalty to our relationship with God. We, too, struggle with forsaking God and looking elsewhere for our salvation, for our life, for our substance. And so I want to talk for a minute and take verse 13 and not just say, what did it mean to Israel? But what could it mean for us in this present moment? What could it mean to us that he's calling us out for forsaking God? Let's look at this for a moment. Well, the word forsake, it means to turn away from or abandon. And forsaking is is closely related to the word uh, forgetful or forgetting, but it's not completely. It's a little more than that. Um, think about forgetness, forget, be, being forgetful of God for a moment. You know, it, it's hard to, throughout the day, if you've experienced this, to stay aware of God's presence because God is invisible. What does the catechism tell us? He does not have a body like man, um, except for Jesus, who's now residing in heaven. Um, but God, God's not, he's not visible to us like the kitchen sink is visible to us, is he? And so we can get busy going throughout our day, and before we know it, we've forgotten God's presence in the world. When I get stressed because the kids are yelling in the car, I'm not thinking all the time, well, God is here with me, so why don't I I address him or bring him into this? When I have a a medical issue or an emergency, I I don't immediately put God into the equation of that. I'm quick to forget him. And this is certainly part of forsaking God, but forsaking goes a step further than forgetting. 
You see, forsaking is not only having a momentary lapse of God's presence, but it's, it's rejecting him altogether. It's turning away from him. It's not just for, for a few hours saying, oh, I for, yeah, God, you're here. It's, it's saying, hey, I'm going to do this whole life thing on my terms. I think I can do this apart from God. Forsaking God looks like us deciding to take life into our own hands. Worship then becomes an empty ritual, a cultural duty, a mere payment we offer to earn God's favor. But really, functionally, we're living our life looking to other gods to help us get by. Whether that's our own strength, whether that's cultural, political power, whatever it is, we're looking elsewhere to provide. Now that brings us to the second point of his complaint in verse 13 when he says that they look to, to broken cisterns and we too look elsewhere for salvation and substance. You see, when we turn away from God as a source of our life, being our identity, our provision, our protection, even when we turn away, we still need those things. We have a God-given neediness about our nature. We have genuine needs in our heart. And so what happens when we turn away and forsake God is that we start looking to meet genuine, God-given needs in counterfeit ways. And by nature, by our sin nature, we resolve to find life, substance, salvation, meaning, purpose on our own terms. You see, we know in the depths of our hearts, in that quiet moment alone, that we are not what we often project that we are needy creatures, that we need love, that we need belonging, that we need identity, satisfaction, we need sustenance and purpose. But having walked away from the source, having forsaken God, we've started looking elsewhere. How many of you have ever, you don't have to raise your hand, this is just a question for you to think about. How many of you have ever gone to the grocery store when you are just ravagingly hungry, huh? You know, I, I do this. That's usually like I'm not the grocery. I do pickup orders, but I don't usually go in a lot anymore. And, and usually when I go into the grocery store, it's because I am hungry. I'm like, we got to have groceries now. And if you've ever gone into the grocery store very hungry, it's, it's really a dangerous thing. Like I got to start going on the cookie aisle and it's just not like a box. Of maybe the, you know, the half fat ones. It's like, OK, throw them in. Oreos. Yeah. Double stuff. You know, like, like chocolate chip. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get the Throw those in, too. And what about that new thing? Let's try that. It looks shiny. And you go to the chips aisle. You throw in chips. I mean, it's just and you get a grocery bill that's absurd. You know, and my wife's like, you're not you're not going again, you know. <laughs> but because we're going in hungry, all the marketing, all the labels that are held out to us, they look so promising. And being empty of food and empty of nourishment and sustenance, we are in a vulnerable place, aren't we? And yet what happens when we get home and, and we eat, the, we dig into the chips and we, you know, I dig into the cookies or the ice cream, whatever it is, Creamy Creations or, or Bluebell. Um, it's all empty. It tastes good for a moment. And then what happens? You feel kind of that, that sugar low or that carb fall, you know, you, you kind of fall and what it promised to deliver in the grocery store, and even what you thought it would be for you, it's not. And really, we even know by science and nutrition studies that, that all the sugar in many of those junk foods, um, they, they actually erode our bodies over time. They're not good for us. 
This, is, this is kind of gets at the heart of idolatry. We, being needy creatures, are vulnerable to the marketing of all the gods in our culture. We're vulnerable to the voices that offer us life apart from God. You see, if I'm desperate for love and belonging, if I've turned away from God and yet I still have that need, then maybe the voice of self-improvement can subtly meet me with some options that maybe if you just looked a little more beautiful, if you had this surgery, if you had this, you know, if you, if you, got, if you got a little fitter, or if you got a little, you know, if you, you got this makeup brand that's being sold by your friend, maybe if we were, we were just a little bit more entertaining and you were just a little more funny, then, then you could be loved and lovable. Or maybe you just need to find someone else, another spouse or a better friend or a better pastor who can appreciate how great you are and reflect that to you. Maybe you're desperately hungry to prove that you're someone that you can achieve, that you can accomplish. And so you hear that little voice of, if only you could be a a little bit better athlete. If only you could climb the ladder a little more in your corporation. If only you could silence the people who doubted you. Then you would be someone. Maybe you're desperate to find something that is real and satisfying and brings you joy. And perhaps you've resolved that there's no joy to be found in this world, so you escape into the world of your phone or the world of pornography or the world of endless entertainment of other people's stories. Perhaps into alcohol or substance abuse. You see, we could go on and on with option after option, just like the grocery store throws at us. Creation to those who are needy, who have forsaken God, turns into what John Calvin called a buffet of idolatry. And having been disconnected from the source of true life, having developed a habit of walking away from him, we're vulnerable to other lovers. We're vulnerable to counterfeit solutions that will vie for our affections. But these created things, what Jeremiah is telling us, these created things, no matter how shiny, no matter how promising, no matter how alluring were not made to be your God. They cannot give you life. They have no ability to save or sustain you. He uses the illustration of a cistern here in our text. A cistern, you know, back in the, in, in the days of Jeremiah and, and for many days of history, they didn't have the endless supply of water where you just go turn it on at the, at the faucet. And so they, they would dig out these cisterns that they could, I guess, they would go to the river or go to the well or wherever, and they would store their water in these little kind of holes in the ground that they'd put some plaster in or whatever material they used, and they would store their water in these cisterns. Now imagine doing all the work, laboring, toiling, to go down to the river or down to the well and filling up the cistern, and, and you know, all, I don't know, that would be quite a bit of work probably. And by the way, this water represents the life of your family. Like, again, they don't have the faucet. This is drinking. This is cooking. You know, this is whatever. This really sustained them. And coming back to the cistern and realizing that it was just cracked. And all the water and all your work, it had just kind of, it had kind of evaporated and, and, and leaked out. Jeremiah is saying, this is what idolatry is. It's creating, it's digging up and creating a broken cistern. 
It's chasing after something that you believe is going to give you life and sustenance and salvation, and it's empty. It has no substance. You see, church family, man was not made to live on bread alone. Created things cannot give you the life you hunger for. Now listen, it's not that created things are bad. That's another mistake we could make. We need bread. Please go eat some bread today. Or if you're on a carb, you know, eat some meat. <laughs> bread was given by God. So don't hear me say creation is bad. Spiritual things, you know, are good. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not contrasting the two. God is not in competition with creation. He's not against it. He's for it, right? Um, ancient cultures often would elevate the sun or stars to the status of God's. Does that mean that the sun and the stars were bad? Were they the problem? No, it was their hearts looking to creation to fill what only God could fill. You see, God made all creation. The problem lies in our hearts when we attempt to elevate creation to the place where only God belongs. It's when we seek to consume creation apart from communion with God. You see, the problem is not creation versus God. It's when creation sets over God. God was meant to rule. He was meant to give. Creation was this means by which when we consumed it and we participated, whether it's looking at the beauty of the forest or whether it's tasting the goodness of food or whether it's you know, enjoying that relationship, it's made to be given by him so we could offer back thanks to him and have communion with him. And the tragedy of idolatry is it's us saying, Dad, no thanks. We don't want the relationship. We just want the stuff. And Jeremiah is saying, this is sickening. Even though you don't feel it, even though it might not look like it, God's heart hurts and it burns with anger because he's jealous for his people. And when he brings judgment, it's so that you can feel the external consequences of your internal idolatry. Creation is given so that we might delight in it and give praise to God. Creation is meant to be a communion and relationship with God, but sin has made creation an end in itself. And this is the broken cistern. See, family, the, the problem lies deep within our heart and our, and our constant pattern of, of forgetting and forsaking and walking away from God. And so Jeremiah, although these words are hard and they're going to be harder in the few, as we go on, he's going to tell us this. He's even telling Israel this after they experience the brokenness of it for the sake of hope and redemption to lead us to confession and repentance. See, sometimes prophetic voices can be hard to hear. Sometimes we have to face first the ugly reality, not of everyone else's problem, but of our sins, right? What do we confess today? What do we say? What do we read about Paul? I'm the chief among sinners. We have to taste the emptiness of broken cisterns so that we might receive the grace of living water. Sometimes God's going to orchestrate the top line of our circumstances, not to destroy you or to get you, but so that you would wake up and see what's going on, that your affections, you might think that they're for him, but they're elsewhere. 
And Jeremiah is calling us, he's calling Israel to repentance. Not to leave us in despair, not to condemn us, but to lead us to the true fountain. You see, when we refused, when we rejected God, when we ran away from him, the fountain came to us. Pursued us while we were still pursuing other things. While we were unfaithful, God remained faithful. He sent the ultimate prophet, Jesus, who would call Israel to repent and turn to him. He dealt fully with our breaking of the covenant, with our adultery, as he became thirsty even to the point of death. He took the pain and punishment of our disloyalty. He became thirsty and exhausted, literally, with his life, so that we who deserve thirst and exhaustion because of our worship could be filled with the water of the Spirit so that we could be forgiven for our breaking of the relationship, so that we could come home to God and receive life and substance from the true source. I want to read a passage and close with this from John, John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. Another situ- story about water as, as Jesus encounters a woman at the well, and he has some words that apply to us today. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not only did Jesus come to forgive you, he came to offer you the living water of the Holy Spirit. His body was crucified, broken, buried. He was raised on the third day. And when he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He poured out the living water on his church. You see, family, when we hear the words of the prophet, what it does is it prepares us. It churns up the soil of our hearts to call us to quit looking to creation to satisfy you. Quit looking to the broken cisterns that are leaking water. And look to Jesus who pours out in you a fountain that is never ending. This is the call this morning. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you exhausted in your pursuit of other lovers? Would you hear the call of Jeremiah and see the absurdity of looking for life in created things? Would we put God back in our number one and let creation take its rightful place below the sovereign Lord Jesus? This is the invitation for us this morning to come to Jesus who pours out the living water of the Spirit. Let me pray for us.
Father, we are so grateful that you decided to reveal yourself in the written word. That the Holy Spirit, years ago, inspired human authors to write down your works in history so that we could have clarity about who you are and what you want from us. And this morning, I pray that we would heed these words to believe that there is life nowhere else but in you. And God, the things that we've made ultimate, the things that we've put in in, in the seat where only you should sit, would you in your kindness just come and help us to pull those off, to turn away from those and to turn to King Jesus on the throne. And as we do that, as we look to you and we realize what you've done and who you are, would you pour out the water of your spirit to weary, tired, fearful people this morning? Would you fill us with your presence? Would you show us that there is no God like you? There is no other source of satisfaction and salvation. Help us, Lord Jesus. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.